Welcome to the Climate Fix podcast. In February 2021, many Earthlings who aren't accustomed to extreme cold weather because of where they live on the planet experienced severe snowstorms. This led to disastrous conditions, massive inconveniences, and the loss of many lives. Now, weeks after the storms have passed, thousands of people in Texas are still without running water. In this episode of The Climate Fix, our co-hosts will discuss this situation together, look at the facts and numbers, and tease out some specific threads around the scientific truths, the social and political dynamics, such as disinformation, and the possible paths forward from here. Tune in for relatable perspectives from folks who, just like you, are on a climate journey. Hi, my name is Tim Falls, and I'm based in Taos, New Mexico. Hi, my name is Amelia Holcomb, and I'm based in New York City. Hi, my name is Asim Sain. I'm based in the United Kingdom. Hi, my name is Margaret Benisek, and I'm also based in the United Kingdom in London. Should we start with our podcast? Well, I've just spent three hours watching the uh, ERCOT urgent board meeting uh, in which they all met to discuss the electrical crisis and then promptly resigned. So um, I... Uh, have some fun facts and figures that we could start out with about kind of the magnitude and scale of what happened from an electrical grid perspective. Is everyone down for for some numbers, for some thousands of megawatts? Okay. (laughs) So uh, what I learned is that um, in November, ERCOT uh, gave a report in which they were, they do this every year, they try and project their expected peak winter demand. Um, And so they projected 57,000 megawatts of peak demand for this winter. This was back in November, so long before we knew uh, that the storm was coming. Um, And they said, we estimate that we have about 83,000 megawatts of resource capacity that will be online to meet that peak. During the storm, this is what's crazy. During the storm, the grid lost 52,000 megawatts of power at the highest point. So that's nearly as much as they had projected their peak demand was going to be. Um, They estimated that demand, if they had not instituted blackouts, demand might've reached 76,000 megawatts of power, um, though it never did because they shed load off the system, um, which the board member described as a never before seen peak of power, right? So that clearly exceeded even their expected demand for any point during the winter. Um, And they really lost so much electricity that there was really no opportunity even for rolling outages. Um, They could only get critical infrastructure um, powered. So that 52,000 megawatt number that they lost um, was 48.6% of their total installed capacity. Now, for reference, ERCOT considers 15,000 megawatts of loss to be an extreme generator outage in their capacity planning. And then the last thing is they um, referenced an and at basically one key moment, 25,000 megawatts of natural gas started failing. Um, So for reference, as compared to the 2011 crisis, um, which a lot of people have compared this to and said, you know, well, why didn't you plan? We saw what happened in 2011. I think to a certain extent that probably is true. There were lessons learned from 2011 that weren't taken. But just to compare, so the cumulative lost generation power in 2011 was 29,000 megawatts. 
And then in this one was 46,000 megawatts. Um, the peak load then was 59,000 megawatts here, as I said, like in the 70,000 megawatt range. Um, so there, the maximum load they needed to shed was 4,000 megawatts. This year, it was 20,000 megawatts. So just the scale of this is enormous and unprecedented and uh, kind of crazy. And sorry, did you say they all quit at, after the call? Uh, yeah, and then uh, many of the board members resigned. Yes. <laughs> it's, as in, like, as in, like, we've done such a bad job. Yes. We quit. That, oh, really? So falling on their sort yes. of. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Um, one other fun fact that I learned from this call is that there are no required weatherization standards enforced mm -hmm. by ERCOT in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, they do some inspections, some trainings, but they they have no standards, no minimum required weatherization standards. May I, may I ask some very basic questions? from a non-American. Non hopefully I can answer, yeah. <laughs> no, no, so you will hopefully be able to answer. These are gonna be extremely basic questions. Okay, what, what's Texas like? Um, is it like a warm place normally? Like, does it actually get, so does it get cold there sometimes? And this is an extreme example, or does it just never normally get cold? And they never, have, nothing ever freezes, like? It does get cold in Texas. But it is a generally very warm place. But it, it, it is not unheard of for it to snow. Um, my brother lived in Texas for 12 years, and I visited almost every year, every one of those years. And I was usually there in the summer, and it can get as hot as, like, it's so hot that you can't walk barefoot on the concrete. And, like, I had to keep my dog from going out on the patio the last time I had him there because it would have burned his skin. But in the wintertime, it sometimes snows. Not often, but it does. I actually saw it snow in Austin um, a couple years ago, maybe three or four years ago when I was there for work. So it doesn't get below freezing normally. Right. And and can I so how how bad was it this time round? Like how bad was the weather? Like was it much below freezing or? Yes, um, it went down to minus eighteen Celsius, I believe, um, at times. And uh, in addition, it was cold. It was colder than it was in twenty eleven, and it was colder for longer. There was mm -hmm. also more ice accumulation, which meant that even after power was restored, there were a lot of transmissions lines down, and mm -hmm. you know. It wasn't just the generators, the whole kind of grid was vulnerable. But you also mentioned that it was, this was unprecedented, but actually I watched that short clip of video from 10 years ago and it was so not unprecedented. You know, they, in fact, they had like a decade to winterize all of the power plants, you know, and all of their systems and they haven't done that. So in fact, this is just like a huge, you know, failure and they should have resigned. And that's that's the right thing to do in my opinion. But yeah, it's just, it really shows that, you know, climate change is still not on top of people's minds, especially not those people in, in power, which is sad. In power in both senses of the term. <laughs> <laughs> There's one other aspect of how management of power works in texas i think that's important because 
control is and decisions are distributed. For example, ERCOT manages the grid, but they have no influence over the power plants themselves that produce the power that goes through that grid. So even if they said, hey, 10 years ago, they said, hey, we need to switch over to more renewables. We need to weather our, weatherize our fossil fuel-based plants. They couldn't make that happen. The corporations who run those power plants had to make that decision, and they decided not to. One of the things that I don't really understand, because I, you know, like, based on all those articles that I read and some of those that you guys shared with us, so Texas has its own power grid, right? And they have that to avoid federal regulations. And yet they blame renewables for failing the system. Like, to me, that just sounds like a joke. <laughs> you know, like, how does that even work? Like, how can they blame renewables when it's literally in their power to actually decide whether they will have renewables or not? Or am I understanding it right? Like, is that, is that how it works? Yeah, that's that's right. And I, I also think that, I mean, I think that the the claim that renewables were to blame for this was specious on many levels. I think that um, even given, I mean, you know, they, they do control how much wind energy is uh, or renewables are on the grid. Um, but uh, also, you know, wind just, in this case, it just wasn't the problem. There wasn't actually a uh, enough wind as a portion of the total power. Um, and in fact, wind capacity during the outage, the change in wind capacity was quite small. Wind uh, basically performed as they had expected, sometimes a tiny bit lower, but mostly what they had planned for during the, the storm. Um, so I think that really it's not, um, I think that the claims that were being made on Fox News and by Greg Abbott by uh, the governor of, of Texas um, and others are pretty clearly false. So what did cause, because obviously we've heard a lot of claims and I've heard a lot of things that people claiming that wind, wind farms and renewable power plants were kind of the cause for all of this and doesn't sound particularly right to me. Um, what, what did cause all of that? Or did you say 30, 52 megawatts from disappearing into the from the grid? Like what stopped working? Yeah, so I can summarize at least what uh, ERCOT listed in their board meeting. Um, so they listed uh, four things during the meeting. They said the primary one was natural gas fuel problems. So that's issues with getting natural gas um, to plants and keeping it flowing, um, mostly because the pipes through which it flows are above ground and not insulated. Um, because of expectations about Texas's weather usually. Um, the second huge thing, which was actually, uh, they said similar, they, they didn't have exact numbers, but they said it was of similar proportion, was instrumentation and equipment failures. So just the monitoring equipment, things that got iced over, things that weren't rated to run in that level of cold. Um, they said another key one was transportation. So anything that relied on people or materials getting from point A to point B, uh, was significantly slowed down when uh, people, uh, because the roads were iced over, people couldn't get there safely. Um, they said that then there was also some amount of solar icing and wind turbine icing. That's not what I was expecting the answer to be. I thought it'd be something along the lines of like the physical capacity 
of energy production had just stopped, but just instrumentations freezing over means that the kind of the thing was probably still capable of giving you energy. It's just the thing that controls it stops uh stopped it stopped it from moving. Yeah, and if you think about uh I mean I've heard a lot of comparisons made to more northern regions and how they have windmills, they have solar panels, they have natural gas, they've weatherized it all and it works. So the technology is just there, the knowledge of what needs to happen to make these things work in these conditions is completely within our our realm of understanding and it's just simply a decision that um, it was too expensive to do that and that they would rather take the risk i suppose than make the investment and de-risk one thing i would add there that i think we've touched on but we haven't really like uh, spoken about too much yet is um texas energy market deregulation so um, throughout the rest of the United States and in a lot of places in the world, uh, generally, electricity is, uh, right, it's a utility. Um, you usually have kind of one uh, entity that delivers it, maybe a couple of entities, um, but there's sort of a default or like incumbent entity that delivers it, and that's tightly regulated by the government to set prices. Um, and in Texas, they have a deregulated energy market where, um, you know, there are lots of different electricity providers um, and uh, there's and it's a retail, a retail system. Um, and so that's part of why there's like less of this um, less ability to kind of control uh, what's going on um, on the grid. Though one thing I found that was quite interesting is that the Wall Street Journal did an analysis shortly after the crisis and looked at, well, are customers of retail electricity actually saving money? Um, because the whole idea was, you know, this is going to drive down prices because everyone's competing for lowest prices for consumers. And they actually found that um, the customers of retail electricity uh, in Texas paid more than customers of traditionally regulated utilities in Texas. This is before even the price hikes that we've been hearing about just now, this is just 2004 to 2019, they paid $28 billion more over that time than uh, traditionally regulated utility customers did. And that in fact, though they're touted as having a lot of competition due to mergers in recent years, there are actually only two companies that control three quarters of Texas's retail electricity market. The whole narrative of this story is, is so interesting and complex because on, on one hand, you've got climate change. So you've got this event happened in Texas, which is clearly um, an, an output of climate change. Well, I presume so, the, this kind of outlier event. A, B, it's Texas, which is like one place in the entire world. I'm not even based in America, and it's kind of the one place in the entire world I consider most synonymous with oil and fossil fuels and extraction. So there's that part of the story. There's the other part of the story where people are trying to blame renewables or renewable sources for the problem. And there's the other part of the story where actually that's not even true at all because it's actually got to do with natural gas and, and, and that whole side of the equation. And that whole narrative is so, so interesting. One of the problems around climate change, and that's probably one of the reasons why it started to be called climate change and not global warming, because even though climate change obviously means that our 
you know, overall, the climate is warming, or like the atmosphere is warming, you know, climate change basically means extreme weather events. It doesn't necessarily mean only hot, but also really, really cold. And what I found really interesting is that in all of those articles that we shared, I learned or I read at least a little bit, you know, a little section about polar vortex and the whole concept of this cooling system around the poles that is in place. Like that's like a natural cooling system that the planet, you know, developed over the millions and billions of years. And because of all the heat that is trapped in the atmosphere, that is basically pushing on the jet stream from the equator. And then sometimes it can basically disbalance it and it can make it wavy. And one of those waves went all the way down to Texas. And that was the reason for that, for the extreme cold weather. And this is exactly what happened. Do you remember in 2019, we had the beast from the east? That's what we called it in the UK. That was the same thing. It's just it? all Yeah, it's just all of that really, really warm weather pushing against the jet stream that is keeping all the cool air up closer to the North Pole and the South Pole, obviously, but this was, you know, affected by the North Pole. But then because it gets pushed out and like disbalanced, it can go all the way down to places where we wouldn't expect it necessarily. But that is also a result of climate change. And, you know, resiliency in the future means, you know, it's not only about bushfires and and extreme hot events, although th those will be probably more frequent too, but, you know, also these things. So it's just really interesting to, you know, I found it really shocking that they knew about it from the 2011 extreme weather events and they haven't really done anything. That's really shocking to me. And it's sad, exactly as you said, you know, like you, you would expect a different type of reaction. Yeah. I, I found that polar vortex science really fascinating as well. And just to add on one element to that that I heard um, from NPR is if we rewound one month or so before this storm hit in the Arctic, in Russia, they were having extreme heat, record-breaking heat, like they've never seen before. And, and and that is like, it's a cause and effect thing, right? Where when the heat is intense, more intense than it's ever been in a place that's supposed to be really cold, those hot and cold airs mix and creates what Marketo was describing there, those waves because um, of the imbalance in the jet stream. And yeah, it, the, where we're used to all that air, all that cold air just staying there up there in the north and in the south or down there it's not doing that because global warming so yeah it's like oh wait it's cold but it's cold because it was hot <laughs> you know so it's it's important i think that we draw those connections between cold and hot and how they cause one another and uh to dispel those myths around oh can't be global warming if it's cold that that to me i had no idea about the polar vortex aspect of this thing and that's how it explains such a sudden sharp extreme change in temperature but then also um if, if, from what i understand from what you're saying these things are happening all the time anyway it's just right now it landed in texas and it happened across the country 
this was the the United States was more snow covered than it's been in I believe 16 years is the last time it's been 16 years if I got that correct from my memory when as much snow was blanketing that much of the country but it was happening in other countries too uh, Spain had more had a huge snowfall and I saw pictures on the news, even though American news doesn't cover international very adequately. Um, you know, people, some people really enjoying it and loving it and being in the cities, but also, you know, totally immobile and not able to get around because it was, again, like, quote unquote, unprecedented. I'm not sure how unprecedented it was there, but, um, you know, Texas made a lot of news, but it's not the only place that was experiencing something that is rarely, if never experienced. I also think it's important to note that like unprecedented doesn't mean impossible to predict or model. Um, and that it's, I think the importance of listening to and elevating the voices of climate scientists and climate modelers, um, I think can't be overemphasized, especially after events like this. How I'm actually quite interest, interested to hear, but in in the reality of kind of everyday kind of American life, like has has this had an impact? Um, have people like I remember with the bushfires, um, a lot of people that I knew were kind of perhaps soft green became a much harder green. I think I probably just invented a way of of categorizing green people it kind of evangel uh, galvanized people into more action would you say this has or has this perhaps been more polarizing than than galvanizing you know it's really hard to say i looked for opinion polls before we uh came to meet and i couldn't find any that had come out since the or any about climate specifically that had come out since the crisis um i did find that Ted Cruz's approval rating fell by 20 percentage points among uh, Republicans. <laughs> um, so uh, after his uh, trip to Cancun, but, um, but yeah, I was very curious about this as well. Sort of this question of like, like, is this idea of wind energy being the problem here or the Green New Deal being a thing that's going to somehow cause this to happen more frequently? Like, is that credible to the American public? And are people buying it? Or are people, I mean, we're sort of incredulous, and I think many people are incredulous, but I, I, I'm really interested to see what polling shows, you know, in the coming months about how people are reflecting on it. Yeah, I would say on my, based on my observations here, in comparing this to the wildfires in California, for example, there certainly is a coming together of humans at the society level, not so much at the government and leadership level or corporate leadership level. Um, you know, an outpouring of donations and food drives and clothing drives and, and things like that, um, which we saw with the California wildfires as well, people all over the country donating to particular organizations who are on the ground to help feed and, and shelter folks. Um, but at the leadership and governmental level, I think this just gets to the 
really, really big problem that we have throughout society related to climate and other things, which is disinformation. And that's what's happening. That's what Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, did when he went out on the news the day after the storm hit and said, you know, this is all renewable energy's fault. And he said that in contradiction to himself of what he said the day before in a different press conference, which, I mean, my only interpretation of that or my, the most obvious interpretation of that in my mind is money. You know, he gets money, he gets money from oil companies and so do a lot of politicians and I haven't checked that. So fact check that for me if we will, but politicians take money from oil companies and that's why they spread disinformation. So there is an audience out there is believing that, you know, all these problems are caused by um, windmills, which sounds so crazy to me because like, and I hate the fact they call them windmills, by the way. It, I feel like it's such a word to describe, like it makes you, oh, just these little quaint little windmills. Wind turbines, these things <laughs> the size of football pitches spinning in the sky. They're huge, humongous things. They call them wind windmills are causing your problems. Um, you know, they're, they're used all over kind of northern northern Europe. I mean, uh, Denmark gets bloody cold. Um, and I believe it's the major source of power in Denmark is wind these days. Um, you know, yeah. And, you know, they're putting these things out in the middle of the ocean that no one can see, kind of completely run almost autonomously. I mean, these things are are absolutely amazing feats of technology. Um, anyway, I just got off track because they called them windmills and it annoyed me. <laughs> I, was, I felt that's a calculated move to call it a windmill. I didn't think they, uh, they, they accidentally said that, but yeah. I guess one of the interesting things that I learned when I was reading about this is that that I had no idea is that Texas is actually the largest, has the largest wind capacity of any U.S. state. And if it were a country by itself, it would be fifth in the world for wind capacity. Um, and it's not even close, actually, within the U.S. The runner-up state has a third of the wind capacity um, that Texas has. Um, and a lot of that wind capacity was actually pushed for by people who I think we often uh, demonize in the uh, climate world, which is uh, George Bush and uh, Energy Secretary Rick Perry. Now, I think it's worth putting that in perspective, though, that Texas is also a huge consumer of electricity uh, and energy overall. And they are also the largest, despite these gains in renewable energy, they are the largest carbon dioxide emitter um, of any U.S. state, this one by a factor of two, um, mostly because, or I, not even mostly, I mean, just because of their oil and gas uh, production and 50% of their um, energy is, uh, a little over 50% of their energy is uh, industrially used. Um, plus they have a lot of, a lot of their greenhouse gas emissions are not even counted by that carbon dioxide figure because they're from methane leaks from their gas, natural gas production. So I think there's a very like interesting story here about like the role that wind is playing in Texas's energy mix um, as well. 
One of the most interesting facts I learned about the renewables uh, transition that's happening all over the world is that the vast majority of it has been driven not by countries wanting to reduce their emissions, but have been by purely because it's cheaper um, as a cheaper source of energy. And also, and this probably doesn't doesn't factor in for Texas, but also energy independence. Mm -hmm. So like China's doing, China's investing heavily in wind uh, because they just don't want to be reliant on other people, that they import energy and they don't want to be reliant on an importing energy. So I wonder if that's kind of the Texas, I don't know if they were doing it for climate reasons. I doubt, I have no idea about Texas. But I see you both shaking your head on the on the thing, so yeah, doubt it. But it must have been purely from like a cost perspective, I imagine, or for other reasons. Just because it's touted as kind of this renewable solution, but it's actually a really great solution, period. Right. And I think it's worth emphasizing at this point well as well that, you know, wind energy is um, I think we're like a lot of the narrative has been that it's unreliable. Um, and I think it's worth saying that wind energy was among the most reliable of the energy sources during this crisis. Um, and that though, you know, 14,000 megawatts of wind was out at the start of this, right, that was planned, that was known not to be there. And in fact, wind energy met or at sometimes was slightly lower than, but mostly met uh, the capacity expectations during the crisis. To me, the root or, or not perhaps not the root cause of the problem, but one obvious solution is for Texas not to be its own separate grid, right? Because the same thing happens, and I, I remember reading about this one. Probably one of the countries mixed up. I think the same thing happens with Denmark and Sweden or Norway. So Denmark has a lot of wind, so when they have an oversupply, they sell their energy to, let's say, Sweden, and Sweden basically have, must be Norway. They have lots of fjords and they pump water up into the mountains using that free, the cheap wind. And then when Denmark doesn't have any wind, they buy their energy from Norway who stored it. And then they, they've got lots of this energy up there and they're selling it. So they're, the, the, this energy just can get moved around. You're taking advantages of kind of different regions. Some regions have more winds, some regions are more rockier, some regions have more solar. And the interconnectedness of all of it is, is a huge advantage. And that, that whole reason for being separate is just really shot themselves in the foot. So that's what it feels like to me from over here. Yeah, but especially if Texas has the potential to have like the second biggest potential when it comes to wind power, that's amazing. You know, technically they could be helping those, you know, states around them. So it just sounds like such a cool opportunity to actually step out of this as a as a winner in a way you know and just like invest in this you know invest in wind make it really perfect make it resilient and then help other states around them yeah absolutely yeah i had taken a note in thinking about this about the quote-unquote individuality of the state and i think that gets to this idea that they decided to cut themselves off and therefore not be re regulated by the federal government or subject to that regulation. But yeah, it, it has decreased their ability, if not eliminated their ability to give and take with their neighbors. And I think whether we're talking about the individuality of 
a big group of people or the individuality of a single human being, that is a very, I think it's common amongst all humans, but it's a very American thing for sure, culturally speaking. Like, I'm independent, I can do this myself, I don't need anybody else. And in the face of a climate crisis, that is, in my opinion, the exact opposite of the way we need to be thinking. We need to be thinking about our selves as part of a community we need to be doing communal communal thinking not individual thinking so because to become resilient enough to survive this we're going to need help from one another and we're going to have to support other people as well as be willing to take support from other people so i hope that that is a lesson learned from for for some individuals in this that's such a good point. And that was the whole point of the Paris Agreement, right? Like if if everybody doesn't work together, we will not achieve it. You know, we will not get out of it healthier, you know, and create a healthier and safer future for everyone. So I think you just really made a really important point that everyone needs to chip in. Yeah, I, I love it. I think that would be the perfect ending for our podcast what a beautiful message like we're we're, we're better we're solving this problem together not apart yeah, yeah. That's right.